Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. Hello, everybody. It is February the 9th, and we are slowly but surely pulling away from Donald Trump's America and entering Joe Biden's America. One of the nice things, I think at least, of, uh, of leaving the Trump station is we don't have to hear any more annoying analogies about Donald <laughs> Trump being like Adolf Hitler. Um, unfortunately, though, we're entering the Biden age. And of course, just as they're crazy leftists claiming that Donald Trump was Adolf Hitler, uh, or the second coming of Adolf Hitler, the, uh, the people on the right now seem to be suggesting that Joseph Biden is actually Joseph Stealing or Stalin. Even uh, good old Uncle Joe has got in the business of, of accusing four years ago when, uh, when Trump was running against Hillary Clinton. Biden said that Donald Trump would have loved Joseph Stalin. I don't know what really Joseph Biden knows about Joseph Stalin. I don't think he's much of a historian. Anyway, Hitler and Stalin, two men who, for better or worse, will refuse to die. They are the, 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 the two bad boys of the 20th century and their, and, their, and their reputations and crimes and legacies continue to reverberate in the early 21st century. So we need to talk about Hitler and Stalin, the tyrants in the Second World War, a new book by my guest today, uh, Lawrence, Reese, and I'm not going to call him Larry or Lolly, Lawrence Reese, the author of Hitler and Stalin, The Tyrants and the Second World War. Now, Lawrence, I have to ask you, do we really need another book on Hitler and Stalin? Aren't there enough already? Well, I certainly wanted to write one, which is the way I look at it. Um, I think, I hope that what I do is, is fresh. And it's fresh really because I've been incredibly lucky in my career, which is that for many, many years, um, I didn't just run history programs at the BBC, but I got to specialise in making a certain types of history programs which were related to my specialist area of expertise, the Nazis, the Second World War, Stalinism and so on. And my interest just coincided with the opening up of the uh, East as a result of the Berlin Wall, the free access to interviewees in the so former Soviet Union, and also uh, a period when many former Nazis had just retired and were still compost mentis and could be convinced to be interviewed. So I really I came to this through uh, that kind of historical journalism and the chance to meet not just people who suffered in the regime, people who were perpetrators in both regimes, but also people who worked alongside and knew Hitler and Stalin. And it was through that that uh, meeting those personalities that I was then enthused to want to try and make this comparison. And I think that that 
means that what the book is doing is something fresh and original. A lot of people, when they hear about your book, Hitler and Stalin, will think of Alan Bullock's classic. I think your book is a classic in a different way. Hitler and Stalin, Parallel Lives. Bullock is a more traditional historian. Is the difference in, is the difference between your book and Bullock's that you really focus on this period between 1939 and 1945 in, in the parallel lives of these two dictators? That's one difference. The, the other is, of course, that I got millions and millions of words of original source, primary source, oral history material that he couldn't have because he, when he was writing his book, you didn't have that access to um, the Soviet Union. And moreover, as an academic historian, it wasn't something I don't think that he had the um, background or training uh, to, or particular desire, I'm not sure, to be able to do. It's also different, as you say, rightly, that that I focus very, very much on the war years because those were the years when Hitler and Stalin actually had a relationship of sorts because they are, first of all, in a relationship of sorts because they are uh, in this quasi-alliance with the Nazi-Soviet pact and also because they are later on involved in the biggest and bloodiest, most terrifying war that the world's ever seen after Hitler invades. So those things make it different. Plus, I've had access through um, uh, uh, all the work that's been done in the last years, nearly 30 years since he wrote that book, uh, to the opening up of the archives in the East. And there's been a, a, a real avalanche of fresh new material in the archives that allows us to have a different kind of understanding, I think, than was possible when that book was written. I get that. But what is it that people will learn from your new book, Hitler and Stalin, about Adolf Hitler and Joseph Stalin that they wouldn't have known um, in terms of personality types? What, what, are, what did you learn that we didn't know before those archives opened up? I think what, what, what really struck me about it was the sense in which to meet to walk into a meeting with Hitler was a completely different experience to walking into a meeting with Stalin. So at that personal level, you're dealing with two very, very, very different people, two very, very different types of leader. And yet the overarching, the overarching similarity between them, which I really use as a theme throughout the book, is incredibly clear, which is that they actually shared one extraordinary thing in common. And what that was, was that they both thought that they had uncovered the secret of existence. They were different secrets, of course, uh, different meanings of life, but they both thought that they'd uncovered that. And crucial to that was their desire to create a utopia here on Earth. And they were they, so they're unlike run of the mill dictators, someone like Saddam Hussein or whatever, who who is kind of more akin to a mafia boss. What you're talking about here are two individuals who believe they've uncovered the secret of how the world should be and will now go on to try and shape the world to become that. And in the process of doing that, they are going to destroy millions of lives. But um, they don't care, and they don't care because they believe the end goal is so powerful that, that in fact, any means are justified to get to that end goal and they never get to that end goal. Are you suggesting these two men had um, 
an absence of morality or too much morality, Lawrence? Um, they, they had a level of focus that made that question irrelevant. If you, if you, it's rather like if you are, uh, you know, these, these are profoundly post-enlightenment figures. So that's one of the many or things. pre-enlightenment, I would think. Rather well, than post. well, they're post in the sense that they consider God is dead. God is, God is not there. God is gone. God is finished from the equation. And if you think right up until, um, uh, until the enlightenment, certainly these are, we're talking about major religious wars. These wars were, were, were quite extraordinary in that they were not religious remotely. And yet, and yet they're pursuing a utopian goal. And, and so they're not, there's no sense of morality for Hitler, uh, for Hitler, for, for sure. He is open in his belief in the Darwinian nature of the world. The, the whole world is about the strongest can take what they like from the weakest. And the justification from that is simply that they are stronger. It's uh, interesting that, and, 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 and I'm intrigued by your argument and by your choice of historical period, because, of course, when people write books and think about Hitler and Stalin, we can make jokes about these men, but they were profoundly evil. And, of course, the question always comes up, well, who was more evil? You touch yeah. on this. It's a rather stupid issue. But would it be fair to say that in the period between 1939 and 1945, Hitler was clearly more evil. And then actually, this was the, the, the best moment in Stalin's career. Whereas had you chosen 1933, for example, through 1939 and compared the two men, here we have a screenshot of uh, Anne Applebaum who's been on the show. She wrote a wonderful book, uh, a terrible book in many ways about the, 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 Ukrainian, um, the, the, the Ukrainian famine. Uh, Stalin would have come out a lot worse than Hitler. Well, actually, in the book, what I do is uh, I'm careful to back when when it's important to know those things. For example, <clears throat> the Ukrainian famine. I do discuss the Ukrainian famine in the book and I discuss it in the context of both Hitler and Stalin's attitude yeah. towards the power. Yeah, of I, I didn't mean to suggest so, you, you glossed no, no, over no, it. No, no, no. But so so therefore, um, uh, uh, one's looking at it in that sense in the Rand. But uh even within the parameters of your question to talk about, well, first of all, I don't ever talk about evil. There's a, there's a huge problem with the word, um, with the word evil in terms of definitional terms and what different people mean by it. You can talk, talk about these people as horrendous nightmare, disastrous characters and so on. E evil is a, 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 such a freighted word that it's difficult to kind of, you know, it's, it's difficult. As a, as a historian, I think it's difficult to use that term. But um, when you're looking even in terms of the war and you say, well, of course, Hitler is, is doing these horrendous crimes, most, most notoriously and most infamously, of course, the Holocaust. Nonetheless, at the same time, Stalin is committing terrible crimes. And I think in, in many ways, those crimes have gone really unrecognized in the popular consciousness during this period. And partly that's because of the, the, the horrendous shadow cast by the Holocaust, but also it's because Stalin was from 1941, quote, on our side. And there was a huge propaganda move not to publicize his 
to, to publicize his crimes. Both both Churchill and Roosevelt knew what was going on uh, that I discuss in the book, how they knew about the massacres uh, at Katyn, the killing of the Polish officers and others. They knew this and they suppressed the knowledge. They, they'd still carried on with this fiction that Stalin put out that the Germans were responsible. So there's that, but alongside that, <clears throat> Stalin is targeting, as the Germans are pushed back, he's targeting whole ethnic groups, the Kalmyks, the Crimean Tatars, the Chechens and so on, and deporting the whole of these groups, enormous numbers of people to the wilds of the Soviet Union where large numbers die. And I focus on one group who I traveled to a place called Kalmykia, south of Stalingrad, which is a very remote republic, uh, still in Russia, then in the Soviet Union, and looked at how that affected that uh, this place. And it was absolutely horrendous what happened there. Um, Stalin decided to deport the whole effective nation. And after the war, in the late 40s, there was documents which uh, scholars have discovered showing that the population, when these people were sent to Siberia, is dropping at such a rate that they will go extinct. They will be exterminated as a people. And it's only yeah. Stalin's death in 53 that saved the, the, the nation from absolute um, extinction. Yeah, so this, this idea of extermination, of course, of different peoples of the Soviet Union, of European Jews, of European homosexuals, and, and et cetera, is certainly a feature. We had, um, Lawrence, we had a, a historian, I don't know if you know him, David Nassau, um, on the show. He, he wrote a book about how destroyed Europe was in 1945. Reading your book, I got a similar image. Whatever you say about, you know, which guy was worse and blah, blah, we as you say, it's a, it's a, in a absurd and a rather obscene, I think, an, almost an immoral discussion. The thing that you get, I got from your book, is just this biblical level of destruction that these two men inflicted on the world. It's astonishing, isn't it? Yes, I mean that's one of the reasons people say to me why, for essentially my life, but certainly my working life for more than thirty years, uh, I've been obsessed with this period. And I, I kind of look at it the other way, which is I can't understand people who who aren't because you're talking here about the most um, in many ways, the most decisive period of of history, certainly in the 20th century, uh, but also the most extraordinary in terms of the individual characters, the sheer um, bloody nature of what they're doing and the these kind of dark epic visions that they have, um, which are unlike uh, uh, in terms of scale, anything that's ever happened. I mean, you know, I, I talked to a historian who specialized in Genghis Khan. I mean, you can argue about Genghis Khan and what he's doing, but but um, but certainly, but certainly that the notion. I mean, you know, I've met a number of many members of the four members of the SS, and in terms of what they were talking about and knew they were trying to do, they had a tremendous sense. <clears throat> pardon me, of excitement about it because they thought they were literally reshaping the world. The meet as a meeting at Himmler's Castle at Wevelsburg just before the invasion in June 1941 of the Soviet Union, where Himmler casually tells his senior officers that they ought to expect 30 million people within the Soviet Union to die in order for the Nazis to get the empire they wanted. Can you imagine 
um where where is that that's a conversation imagine you're in that conversation it's what, fantasy what? yeah i mean you talk about the the physical damage but the ontological damage was just as profound that these two men's assault on 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 truth yeah, uh, we, we we had uh, eric alterman on the show uh, an american author who's written who wrote a book about a, a brief history of american presidents lying what united Hitler and Stalin, though, was their was their their ability to tell the most obscene lies. Is that did, did were they ever truthful? These men and and yes. what you seem to show in the book is that this brought this weakened them so much because they could never acknowledge reality, particularly when it came to military tactics. Well, there's a there's kind of like three things going on there. I think in that in that there's first of all, you're absolutely right as regards lying tactically. In term, at a tactical level, both of them are prepared to uh, absolutely lie like crazy. I mean, um, Hitler's telling correspondents in the 30s he's got no no interest in another war. I fought in a war. That's well, the distinction happened. between lies and truth just didn't exist in their minds. Well, did it? It, where it did exist was in the is was in these utopian visionary goals. They are absolutely sincere about that and don't move from that. Hitler is sincere in what he writes in Mein Kampf. Mind about his desire for an empire in the western part of the Soviet Union and his absolute centrality of his hatred, uh, a warped, dreadful, horrible, murderous anti-Semitism. So those are, he sincerely believes those things. He and he sticks to that right the way through. Those are sincere beliefs. Stalin is utterly sincere in his belief in the Marxist goals and the pursuit of a communist society. I mean, at least his his reading of Marxist goals, which yeah, most yeah, yeah. Marxists know, right, you know, I mean, you, you're, oh, you're God, a veteran. Marxist, if you think it makes medi people arguing in medieval Christianity yeah. about, you know. What, of course, also united these two guys, that they were both men. We had, uh, and they were both the, the, the paradigmatic, the platonic version of strong men of the 20th century. We had... Ruth Ben-Ghiat on the show, a historian particularly of modern Italy, and she focused on Mussolini as a strong man. What united these two men as strong men, Lawrence? Um, I think it's, well, you can look at it at a personal level and you can look at it at a political level. At a political level, I do think it is this absolute firm belief in a world they want to create that involves destruction in order to create it. So they're, they're absolutely comfortable with enormous numbers of people dying because you can't get to what they want without enormous numbers of people dying anyway. So that's uh, um, uh, 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 that's not important. That's not important at all for them. So I think that's the that's the that's the prime thing that um, that is that is uniting them in this in this kind of pursuit. Um. You, um, you, uh, uh, speaking of women, uh, Ruth Ben Giat has this wonderful quote uh, about <laughs> Mussolini. She says, or she writes, One thing was certain once Mussolini entered your life and your vagina, you were never free of him again. Uh, Mussolini, of course, was a notorious womanizer yeah, and yeah, rapist. Yeah. What's interesting, though, that you suggest in your book about Hitler and Stalin is that they were 
much less interested in women, certainly than yeah. Mussolini. What, what, what was it about, it, it kind of unites them that they were both very strange about women, weren't they? And well, they were, both they were sort of surrounded by suicides and unhappy women and daughters. Yeah, very strange. But equally, I mean, I've, I've met uh, a number of people who knew Mussolini and, and, and um, I mean, Mussolini is, it's in, I simply never, I once tried to work out how Mussolini had actually time to, to be a dictator. Because I mean, he is dealing with. I mean, his the the the. Uh, I was teasing this one academic I know who specialises in Mussolini, and he's written this book when he's discovering the lover. You know, the, when the letters. Who, who was that? You got to give me the name, uh, Lawrence. Oh, he's dead. Uh, Chris Duggan, who wrote this okay. book. But he um uh, uh he he um wrote this wonderful book on um, fascist voices on on Mussolini, and um uh. Basically, the, the letters that, that Mussolini is writing, uh, you know, the, between the, his, his lover and him, and um, the, it's just he is obsessive about sex. I mean, he, he's not just interested in... But, but Stalin mean, and Hitler weren't, were they? No, no. And in a way, in a way, I have to say, I think Mussolini here is, is there's something... That, that you, you can't take Mussolini as kind of like the, the norm paradigm here. Mussolini and sex is, is, quite, is quite something. Mm. Hitler and Stalin... Um, what you're dealing with there is uh, uh, there's a there's a solipsism. There's a sense of uh, deep, deep aloneness to both of them. And there's been all this. I looked at for another book. I spent time trying to unpick the whole tawdry, sensationalist allegations about Hitler's sex life and things. And it's it's very hard to to substantiate to substantiate it the fact is that um he's just not that interested i don't believe he's just simply not that interested his focus is elsewhere and the same i think is true of stalin even though stalin has a number of lovers when he's um uh, a, a revolutionary you know his first wife you know he's, he, his first wife dies his second wife kills herself um and then he's for as what we know having an affair with his housekeeper but even so he's he's still deeply alone so yeah i love this idea of the solitariness um of course perhaps uh the most profound observer of totalitarianism <clears throat> in the the 20th century was hannah arendt and she focused on the ability of men like hitler and stalin to do away with our sense of reality isolate us not only from the world but from each other do you think that the Arentian reading of totalitarianism um is echoed in your book on hitler and stalin yes i do i think that that what you have to do and what they had to do was to create an alternative reality and mm. they both tried to do that if you look how incredibly careful both of them were to prevent foreign media influences coming into the societies, particularly Stalin. Stalin was intensely suspicious of anybody who came from outside, even other communists. I mean, he, his, his kind of paranoia about foreign communists almost matches his paranoia about foreign fascists. He, he, he's absolutely trying to ensure that within the Soviet Union, he is in control of the information, the flow of information. And essentially, then he creates a fantasy in people's minds such that I've met members of the Red Army who move, for example, 
into Poland when they Eastern Poland when they take over Poland in the spring of 1939, who then are utterly shocked at how wealthy it is because they've been told that they were living in this extraordinary paradise. And now suddenly they see, look, these people are living better than we were. And they they have terrible problems processing that. And this was a problem that Stalin faced as the whole army moves west and moves into Germany. And a number of of Red Army soldiers um, said to me they couldn't understand why the Germans were fighting them when they had so much stuff themselves. Why were they coming to us? And of course, they they couldn't grasp that they were were coming to them not 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 for the people. They didn't want the people. They just wanted the land. Lawrence, you um, as you said at the beginning of this conversation, your day job historically is as a, a, a filmmaker, documentary. <clears throat> a very distinguished, award-winning uh, documentary filmmaker. You worked for a long time for the BBC. Uh, you made many films, some about World War II, about the Nazis, warning from history, Auschwitz, the Nazis, and the final solution. Why have you turned to writing, to books? Are books, how do you tell the truth about this terrible period in history in books that you can't tell in documentary films? I, um, you rightly say I started, I always wanted to make uh, history films. It's what I wanted to do since I can remember. Uh, but what I then discovered 30 years ago, so it's not like I've turned to books a bit. 30 years ago, I wrote my first history book and I, and I went to it because I found in making the series, it was in fact then a series on uh, propaganda um, and the first major input influence throughout the series but the first episode was on Goebbels um and I found that whilst I love making films I couldn't express you know films are terrific documentary films are terrific at a number of things they're particularly good at conveying an emotional response what they uh lack sometimes is the ability to sustain argument complex argument and so what I discovered 30 years ago that I could have the best of both worlds. What I was doing was writing a book at the same time as I was making the series. And I could and I could use the benefits of each of each benefits and disadvantages of each medium uh, against each other, if you see what I mean. So then I did the Nazis warning from history, which I wrote a book with. Then I did a series called War of the Century about Hitler and the Stalin War and wrote a book with. Then did a series called Horror in the East about the war in Japan, wrote a book with, um, and, you know, right the way I did uh, Auschwitz, as you say, war, World War II behind closed doors. And then I did a series, uh, did another series on uh, the charisma of Adolf Hitler, wrote a book about that. So it's, so it's only been really in the last... All cheerful subjects. No, no, <laughs> well, no, wonder, you're, no wonder you're sitting in your attic in the dark. It's uh, true. Lawrence. That's right. Yeah. Um, um, The book, as you say, is 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 a very. A very detailed, very well argued, highly substantial narrative about a very odd, unreal, unreal moment in European history and world history. Do you think that movies like uh, Chaplin's Great Dictator or Ian Ianucci's book about the death of Stalin, which are highly ironic, uh, or even dealing with Hitler memes. Sometimes they're absurd, of course, but sometimes quite 
relevant. Is that a better way of, of confronting the absurdity of Hitler and Stalin? No, not that I, I mean, I loved that to Stalin. I was brilliant. I, I thought it was hysterical. I was just, you know, great. You look um, as if you were actually in it. Well, you want to <laughs> thank you very much. Um, uh, I, but the reasons I say no, I don't is because I just talked about how, you know, I was doing making serious documentaries. Uh, and even in the context of serious documentaries, sometimes it was hard to get across uh, detailed arguments, especially nuanced within argument. Uh, and films aren't about that. I used to have, uh, when I was running history, I was doing all this, but also we started getting involved in some quite big historical dramas. And as soon as we moved into doing dramatizations, what you discovered was you, you you started meeting people who were dealing in drama and that those meetings were just hysterical because um, we'd be going through what we would want trying to do. And they, and I'd say, but this, the bit here you've changed because this didn't really happen. So we can't do that. And they go, no, 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 no. We're talking here about essential truth. We're talking dramatic truth. And I'd say, you mean a lie, obviously. I mean, you know, and, and it was, so you have a fundamental problem between the two forms because with a drama, you must have a narrative arc. There's a wonderful, was it Oscar Wilde, who said, um, the good end happily and the bad unhappily, that's why we know it's fiction. You know, you you you, you have a dramatic arc. You have this, it has to go one, you know, it has to go in a particular way. Real life doesn't. That's why I've always been more interested ultimately in real life, because we need to confront real life where it doesn't go like that. And, and that's yeah, yeah, and and that real life is of course what distinguishes your book, your book on the Holocaust, um, in which you captured the voices of of, of the victims, um, is now I think considered a, a classic. In fact, um, I, I didn't tell you this before, uh, you interviewed a woman called uh, Frida Weinman in the book, a Holocaust yeah. survivor who's who I grew up with in London, a very close uh, family relative. Really, oh, Frida's like fantastic. It was almost like, uh, yeah, like uh, an, oh. an aunt or a, gra a surrogate aunt or grandmother. She was my grandmother's best friend. But wow. uh, in terms of this book, who would you have liked to have interviewed on Stalin and Hitler that you couldn't, that are dead now? Who would be, wow. in, in a fictional sense, if you, could, if you could get in the room with people who knew Hitler and Stalin? Might it be Lenin? Yeah, maybe Lenin, but um, certainly uh, as regards um, Hitler, I would have really liked to have met Heydrich. Heydrich is an extraordinary individual. He uh, was the one who was killed by the the in, in Prague, right? That's right, and he was the one who was one of the instrumental people behind the final solution behind the what killing. What would you ask Heydrich? Heydrich in the early nineteen thirties was a naval officer and he got chucked out of the navy because of indiscretions with uh, his, uh with a woman and then he joins up and he joins the uh um he joins the ss i've always wondered whether we really at what point what point did he really genuinely believe this stuff and at what point was he acting as a careerist he clearly toward you know he clearly was genuine as things moved on, but it's a very odd trajectory, Heydrich's career. And equally, um, how could he 
sit and plan and work on this and not as far as we know for a second not for a second have the remotest sense that what he was doing was inhumane was murderous and so on um not not for a moment i mean and he absolutely um i remember i met people who knew heydrich and i met this one woman who was a friend of the family and knew him well as a as a kind of you know, to go to dinner with, you know, and she said how charming Heidrich was. He was a great violinist. So you're talking about someone immensely cultural. His father was a, an extraordinary cultural figure. So this is a deeply cultured man, a deeply, you know, a, an extremely uh, clever man. But you're and, not going to fall into that old trap of, 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 of saying, well, being cultured men that you shouldn't be in favor of exterminating no, no, people. No. Well, no, but it's interesting because um, I think uh, actually, you, you, when you're when you're looking at it, you're thinking, um, how is it? How is he? How is it in processing it? It kind of in his own mind, and you actually begin to see how being cultured is a just can be a justification for it. Of course, absolutely, but nonetheless, when when I think a lot of people think that in order to be an absolutely ruthless killer, you have to be, when we think of ruthless killers, we think of actually kind of a slavering, you know, angry. What you're talking about here is something really, really different. And he epitomized that. But I remember her telling me that she discovered what was happening with the Jews and she actually confronted him with it one night because they were trying to save a friend of theirs who was about to be deported. And she saw Heydrich and said, this person's doing all this. And Heydrich just looked at her very coldly and said, don't get involved in things you don't understand. You end the book, um, Lawrence, with a reference to a woman called Tatiana Nanieva. Um, yep. What is it about her? I don't think we even have a photo of her. Maybe there is no, one. No, no. Find. Um, what is it about her that somehow encapsulates this catastrophe of Hitler and Stalin? Uh, she, she was an incredible person to me. I met her in the late 90s in Kiev. Uh, when, and in fact, she was in the process of dying. She died uh, shortly after we filmed an interview with her. And part of, partly during the interview, she was upset because they were so poor that she couldn't afford a, a proper funeral. So it's the only it's the only time, in fact, and we, we were not really paying these people. We were just paying them for their uh, expenses of the lighting and so on. And the, there's all sorts of ethical issues, because once you get involved in paying for interviewees in any substantial sense, there's a sense in which, well, they could be making stuff up for money. You know, you've got to be very careful with that for um, for ethical reasons. But nonetheless, at the end of it, we were all so upset that the crew and I were all so upset that we actually out of our own pocket gave her money and then she the, her family managed to buy her a funeral. I mean, that's how poor they were. They were living in this unheated, dilapidated flat in, in, in Kiev. And, and she was in this state because of one thing that had happened to her, which was that during the war, when she was a committed communist and a young nurse, she'd been nursing soldiers at the front line and being captured. And for Stalin, that was, of course, a horrific crime in itself to allow yourself to be captured. What could she have done? They were surrounded. She's a nurse. She's nursing someone. What she's supposed to do? They captured her. She was put into a dreadful, horrendous German camp and then managed to survive. And then the Red Army come to, quote, liberate the camp. And immediately one army officer starts almost trying to uh, 
uh, assault her, saying the only reason you've been able to survive is you're a whore. And she manages to placate him. She's then arrested and charged with betrayal of the motherland for allowing herself to be captured. And she's then sent off to a labor camp. And yet in 1953, when Stalin dies, she starts weeping and she turns to a friend and says, what are we going to do without him? So this sense of need that she'd been brought up with, this need for this kind of uh, redemptive father figure was so strong that it actually went over all of the terrible things that had happened to her. And she still felt it at the end. And then after that, she lived a life whereby they were paid a fraction of what they should have been. And she was given an inadequate pension because she'd been allowed to be captured. So imagine one day in the war, you're captured and your entire life is broken for it. And yet you still look back and you think, well, Stalin, you know, he was this great father figure. And so this summed up to me. I refer to it in the book as the malleability of the human mind, that the human mind is trying to process so much that it's actually able to try and sustain these contradictions. Your book is, of course, in its own way, polemical. You can't write about Hitler and Stalin without taking a position of one kind or another. And you, you, you show your hand at the end, I think, Lawrence, by suggesting that these men aren't quite dead. You remind us that the Vladimir Putin, the current slightly absurd strongman of, of Russia, is rehabilitating uh, Stalin. And of course, we know from uh, images from the, the insurrection in, in Washington, D.C. last month, uh, white thugs walking around with six million wasn't enough T-shirts and Camp Auschwitz sweatshirts. Stalin and Hitler aren't quite dead. So this book, in a way, is, is an attempt to bury them, isn't it, ultimately? Well, actually, I think it's the. I hope it's the reverse. It's a, it's an it's an it's an attempt to remember them, because well, to remember them in order to to bury them. Yeah, I, I think that the, the the problem the the problem is that they are questions that there's questions about them that and the fact that they were possible that aren't ever going to go away. The, we need all to try and understand how were they possible because that question is going to impact absolutely everyone's lives on the future well Lawrence Reese I really want to congratulate you on a, on a, on a really important book uh, Hitler and Stalin the tyrants in the Second World War anyone with any interest in either Hitler or Stalin or the Second World War need to read this book it's highly readable wonderfully researched very anecdotal moving depressing but also uplifting I think in some ways um, you're stuck in your dark attic in Chiswick, West It's only London. dark because it's night. Give it, me a break. Very dark. I think you have to be there to write about... I, I, I assume you, you wrote your Hitler and Stalin book in that dark attic. Yeah, um, only when it was dark, yeah. That's well, right. switch the light on, metaphorically at least, uh, Lawrence. What else should people be reading in these strange times? Well, in I'm... In to your book. Uh, I'm uh, unusually for me. I'm reading a book that actually doesn't relate to this period, which is by a guy called David Lewis Williams called The Mind in the Cave. And it's it is absolutely one of the single best history books I have read for many, 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 many years. And it's about um, the how do we understand the consciousness 
of the people who were creating these artworks in 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 caves tens of thousands of years ago and it was i was inspired to read it because you know like many many other people i'm a fan of uh, harari sapiens book his huge bestseller about the history of the world and he talks about the moment this crucial moment in human development where human beings develop consciousness and one aspect of that consciousness is the creation of these um paintings and the beginning of understanding about uh belief in uh, gods the need to try and understand that that things exist um uh, in storytelling terms as well and this what what um lewis williams actually does is is make us understand how and why these things were created and it's of enormous relevance actually you wouldn't think it would be but it I think it's of enormous relevance to us now because it talk it speaks to a whole series of things that happen to human beings once consciousness happened. And once consciousness happens, you, you know, and you are actually aware, for example, of your own mortality, you have all sorts of issues and conflicts and problems that you have to deal with, with with which animals, without that level of consciousness, simply don't have to touch. Well, I think if, if, if the one thing your book teaches us, we need to rebuild the gods in our post-Enlightenment age. Lawrence, um, uh, Lawrence Reese, the author of Hitler and Stalin, real honor to have you on the show. Keep well, stay in your dark yes. attic, continue. I'm with, not leaving yet. Continue with these important books and we'll have you back on the show again. So a happy new year and we'll see you again very soon. Thank you yeah, so much. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.